Doing well. Good to see you all. If I haven't met you, my name is Travis Lowe. I am the college and career pastor here on staff at the church. If you could do me a courtesy, turn in your Bible to the book of Exodus, chapter 12. will be in verses 1 through 14. And as you're doing that, just a quick reminder for you, if you've been attending the church for a while, maybe you've been in our large group gatherings on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings, and you're looking to get more connected to the life of our church, maybe meet some people, uh, develop some friendships and relationships, let me just encourage you that our life groups are launching this week. Uh, we have life groups for people in all sorts of life stages, whether you're in high school, you're in college and career, uh, you're a young married couple, you're an older married couple, you're single in your 30s, throughout all spectrums of life, we have life groups, which are groups of people, about 10 to 12, who meet in homes to talk about scripture, uh, to pray with one another, to encourage one another, to live alongside one another. And so let me just encourage you this week to look into that if you have not taken that step in the life of our church. Now you'll remember that we have been in a series for the last few weeks called Reminders, as the handy dandy bumper video reminded you of. Uh, and that is probably a fitting series for me, seeing as I am the most forgetful person that I can ever remember meeting. I cannot for the life of me remember to do hardly anything at all. And I've said this before, but I should repeat it again. If you've ever sent me an email, left me a voice message here at the church, and I haven't responded, that's not malicious. I literally forgot. And I might have even set reminders in my phone so that I wouldn't forget, and I looked at the reminder, and five minutes later, I forgot what the reminder said. Uh, so this is the burden of my life. I don't know how I've made it as far as I have, but here I am. And it's interesting to me that this pattern of forgetfulness is one that doesn't just mark my own life, but it seems like it marks all of our lives in some way or another. And it marks our lives even around things that we would say are the most important. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands, but I'm sure that more people than are willing to admit have forgotten their significant other's anniversaries or birthdays. And it's not because they're unimportant to you. It's because we are forgetful. We forget even things that are important to us, even things that are significant. And this is the pattern that plays itself out throughout the scope of the Old Testament as well. I would say that there's about five or six key things that happen in the Old Testament, and the rest of those first uh, 30 or so books of the Bible are tracing the fallout of those five or six events. The rest of that half of the Bible is God reminding Israel not to forget the importance of the things that have happened. The first of these things would be Adam's fall into sin. The second would be the calling of Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel. The third is the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. The fourth is the setting up of David as the king over Israel. The last is Israel being scattered in the Babylonian exile. But the one that God wants to make sure that Israel remembers above all else, the one that he's continually reminding them of, is the Exodus. This event that takes place in our text for the morning. And this is where we'll be spending our time. But it is important that if we're going to spend our morning in about halfway through a book, that we know what's come before it what we're stepping into because we're stepping into the middle of a story and knowing what has led up to chapter 12 of Exodus is going to help us make sense of what's going on in this passage. So if you're new to church, maybe you just have forgotten some of the nitty-gritty details of Exodus, here's sort of your brief outline of what has happened thus 
far. So God has called a man named Abraham circa 2000 BC to leave his home country and begin a new nation. This nation of Israel that will be a blessing to the nations of the world. He promises that Abraham will have descendants that outnumber the shores and the sands on the shores of the sea. But when Exodus, our text picks up, Israel has been in slavery for 400 years in the land of Egypt. And the people of Israel find themselves in this circumstance where you and I so often find ourselves. You see, they have the promises of God ringing in their ears, this promise that they're going to be a mighty nation, even as the Egyptian slave driver's whips split their back. And so the promises of God begin to feel untrue, or at the very least, desperately out of touch with reality. It's in this situation that God speaks to a man named Moses, who's out in the desert, Moses was raised in Egypt. He was adopted into Pharaoh's courts. He was educated by Egyptian wise men, probably trained to be a prince in Egypt. And sometime in his adult life, he commits murder and he flees to the desert so that he won't be prosecuted for it. God speaks to this man. And he says, I need you to go back to Egypt. Go back to your home or your father's house in which you were raised. Go back to a Pharaoh that he was likely raised alongside as a brother. But you're not going back as an Egyptian. You're going back as an Israelite. You're going back as the nationality into which you were born, not the one into which you were raised. And I need you to tell the Pharaoh that he's going to let my people go. There's a song in that. And so Moses goes and he says, the Lord is asking you to let his people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord? And he proceeds to say, I don't know your God, and I'm not going to do what he says. Now, what transpires in the following, following chapters after that event has been documented in all sorts of movies. I grew up during a time where you had the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston movie on the TV, and this Steven Spielberg movie, The Prince of Egypt, was coming out in theaters. So I was like on Exodus overdose in my childhood. And for me as a kid... Uh, reading about the Exodus or watching these movies that were sort of recounting the Exodus in sort of a popular way, it, in my mind, the plagues of Egypt, the, the things that happen as Pharaoh continues to refuse to let God's people go, this is just God showing off. Uh, these are some divine fireworks. This is God saying, well, if you won't let my people go, check out all this cool stuff I can do. Maybe you'll let my people go then. Well, that's not at all what's happening in our text. No, actually, the next 12 chapters of Exodus, including our passage for the morning, is God answering Pharaoh's question. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? And he says, you'll learn today. And and these plagues are not just interesting demonstrations of God's power. They're absolutely that. They're these miraculous events that take place. But actually, what's going on in each of the plagues is that God is pronouncing judgment against the false gods of Egypt. So, for example, the Egyptians worshipped the gods Apsis, Isis, and Osiris as the gods of the Nile, and he turns the Nile to blood. The Egyptians worshipped Hathor, the cattle god, and he strikes dead all of their cattle. They worship Seket and Sunhu, the gods of health, and he strikes them all with boils and try as they might and pray as they might to their false gods. They cannot be cured. The book of Exodus is the one true God's relentless war against idols. The plagues are not 
a case of divine fireworks. They are God dethroning false gods in which the Egyptians have trusted. Perhaps in your life, you've experienced that mercy, although it doesn't feel like a mercy. We don't tend to build idols of stone anymore, at least not in the West, but we do build idols for ourselves that we put our trust in. Our financial stability, uh, our romantic relationships, our social status at work, we erect for ourselves idols and we put all of our confidence and all of our hope and all of our joy into these things that cannot ever satisfy or save. And it is a mercy when the one true God takes those idols and tears them down. So then, at the heart of the book of Exodus is the story of a God who is relentless in his pursuit of his people and unwilling to be second to any man-made spiritual power. And the Passover, our text for the evening, is the culmination of that pursuit. So with all of that in mind, can I read our text for us? I'm just going to warn you, if it's your first time in church, this is going to sound a little weird. I promise we're going to walk through it together. But can we read this text before we do that? Would you hear the word of the Lord with me? Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill their lambs at twilight. When they take, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts in the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh at night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you will burn. In this manner you will eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you will eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day will be for you a memorial day, and you will keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So far, nobody's run for the door. So God begins this final plague by saying to Moses and Aaron, this month, the month in which this event is taking place, will be for you the beginning of months. It will be the first month of the year for you. One of my favorite singer-songwriters is this guy named Justin Vernon. He has this Grammy award-winning project called Bon Iver. It's sort of an acoustic folk singer-songwriter project. And he put out very early on in his career a record that was produced in response to him being diagnosed with a chronic illness and losing a long-term romantic relationship. And there's a line in one of these songs. It's a heartbreaking record to listen to. 
Uh, but he's reflecting on the emotional pain that he's going through, the weight of this sort of breakup of a relationship. And he says, everything that happens is from now on. And I wonder, in, in your own life, if you've experienced an event that carries that sort of weight. Now, that, that's not to say that it has to be a bad event. It could be something positive. You meet the person that you'll spend the rest of your life with. You say yes to the dress. You finally foreclose, not foreclose, but you finally close on a house. Foreclose on a house would be a negative thing. (laughs) These are the sort of events that carry so much weight in our life that they split us in two. There is who we were before it happened, and there is who we are after it happened. But everything that happens is from now on. And this is what God says to Moses. What I am about to do on this night in Egypt is a from now on moment. It will be so significant in your national life that you will start your year remembering it. It's your New Year's Eve celebration minus Mariah Carey lip syncing. This is what will define your national life and you will begin your year being reminded of it lest you ever should forget. So, so what is it that's happening that is so important to God that his people remember? Well, there's a final plague coming. And in this plague, there's going to be death. Specifically the firstborn, not just of human beings, but also the livestock in Egypt. The firstborn in all of Egypt are going to die. And it certainly sounds like Israel is not exempt from that risk. Now, this would have been incredibly shocking to any Jewish person. You see, in the other plagues, maybe not all of them, but most of them, Israel has been spared the plagues. So when God stretches out his hand and kills the livestock in Egypt, the Jewish livestock lives. But now God's saying, hey, in this last one, you're not safe either. You too might die. And I would venture to say that Moses and Aaron and all of the people of Israel are saying, hey, hang on, your team Israel You're not team Egypt. What's the deal with you killing all of us? That's that's not how an exodus works. There has to be somebody left alive to leave in in exodus. So what's happening in this last plague that Israel is not safe any more than the Egyptians? I think the answer is in verse 12. The Lord says this, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You see, in all the other plagues, God moves through Moses. God speaks. God stretches out his hand. He turns the river to blood. He strikes down the cattle. He turns the the sand of the desert to gnats. But in this plague, in this final plague, God himself is coming to Egypt. In some unique way, in a way that was not true of any of the other events, God himself in his presence is entering Egypt. A couple chapters later, Moses encounters the presence of the Lord on a mountain, and he says, Lord, I want to see your glory. And God's response is, you can't. It will kill you. You see, the the reason why Israel is not safe in the final plague is because no sinful son of Adam or daughter of Eve can stand before the presence of a holy God without judgment. That is why they are at risk. 
Because they, though they are the chosen people of God, are sinful just like all of humanity. God says, remember this throughout all generations. Because he wants Israel to be reminded again and again and again of his utter holiness and transcendence and how he is so unlike us in his perfection, his glory, and his goodness. Bailiff, we talk a lot about the kindness of God. We talk a lot about the mercy of God. We talk a lot about the love of God, the graciousness of God. All of these things are true and worthy of being celebrated and remembered. But how often do we talk about the holiness of God? You know, it is the only attribute of God in all of Scripture that is elevated three times. The angels before the throne say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is the only attribute of God that is elevated thrice fold. It is his holiness. And that is the weight of this final plague that the holy presence of God is now passing through Egypt and no sinful son of Adam can bear it. This would have been particularly shocking for the Pharaoh. You know, I mentioned that all the other plagues were judgments against the Egyptian gods, the god of the Nile, the god of the deserts, the god of the sun. There's one god left in Egypt who hasn't been directly challenged, and that's Pharaoh himself. Because you see, in this day and age, Pharaohs believe that they were gods, which makes firstborn son of Pharaoh, the son of God. And so to hear that the God of Israel is coming, and this so-called God who says he doesn't know anything about the God of Israel can do nothing in his presence, that would have been a weighty claim. This final plague is God saying to Pharaoh, you are not a God. You're a man. I don't think we need something quite so drastic, but how many of us live our lives like we are functional gods? We think we're the master of our own destiny, the captain of our own ship. We'll live and die by our own rules. How many of us need to hear from the one true God, you are not? But there's an escape hatch. There's a way out for Israel in this text. And if we're just being honest, it sounds a little bit weird. And if it's your first time at church, I promise you that not every passage of the Bible deals with this much blood. But this is God's uh, escape hatch for Israel. This is how they can be spared the judgment of the presence of God. He says in verse 3, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man will take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor will take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you will make your count for the lamb. Your lamb will be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from your sheep or from your goats. and You'll keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill the lambs at twilight and they will put the blood on the doorpost. I realize that this sounds bizarre to our modern ears. I realize that if you were driving through your neighborhood and you saw blood smeared on your doorpost, you would rightly call the cops. But there is weight behind each of these actions that requires our attention. So they're told to take a lamb and to bring it into their house for about... Four days. 
between the 10th of the month and the 14th of the month. I think I've mentioned before um, that I, I have a cat named St. Ignatius of Antioch Lowe. That is his full name on his cat birth certificate. Uh, but a couple weeks ago, there was, um, there was some, some health issues that came up. There was some genetic stuff that the vets just said, it's not going to go away. It's just going to get worse. So I ultimately had to make the decision to put my cat down, which was the first time I've ever had to do anything like that. Like, I had pets growing up. I had all sorts of pets. I had, like, a pet bird that I found in the yard. I had a pet lizard. I had a pet cat. I had all sorts of things. But they all sort of passed away on their own. So this was the first time I had to make the decision to end a life because I'm also really scared of hunting. And I, I, was sitting in, um, I was sitting in the vet's office after everything had happened and was really, really upset by it. And I kept saying to myself, it's, it's just a cat. I don't know why I'm this upset. Like, it's, it's just a cat. But as I started to reflect on it, there, there is something about bringing an animal into your home that, that causes it to feel like it's a part of your family. Now, I'm, I'm not the sort of person that thinks that all dogs go to heaven or all cats go to hell or that any animals go to purgatory. Like, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't think that necessarily. I don't have an opinion on whether there's any eternal essence in your, your chia pet or your pet hedgehog or anything like that. But there is something in us bringing an animal into our home that causes it to integrate into our lives in such a way that when that animal dies, it feels like a part of our home has died, yeah? God says, you need to bring this lamb into your home before you kill it. It would have integrated into the life of the family, even if just for four days. And then he says, after you've killed this lamb, you need to take the blood you need to spread it on the doorpost and the lintel, the top bar of the frame of the house. Now, this certainly sounds bizarre to us. It sounds strange. It sounds foreign. But there's weight here. I mentioned when I was in uh, elementary school, maybe middle school, this movie called The Prince of Egypt came out. And it's this recounting of the story of the Exodus. It's produced by Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg actually hired a bunch of religious advisors to help him put together the script for the Prince of Egypt. And so in this scene, when God is speaking, the original script, God says, when I see the mark on the door, I will pass over it. And Steven Spielberg turns the script over to a rabbi and an Eastern Orthodox priest and a Roman Catholic bishop and a Protestant minister, and they all somehow agree that Steven Spielberg has made a mistake, and they all go back to Steven Spielberg, which sounds like the beginning of a joke, like a priest, a rabbi, and, <laughs> and a Protestant minister go to Steven Spielberg. But they all go back to him, and they say, you have to change this word, because it's not any mark on the doorpost. It's, it's not just some uh, scratch, scratch mark on the doorpost. It's not even some symbol painted. It is specifically something about the blood on the doorpost that causes God to pass over the house. And so he did, in fact, change it. So what is it about blood that causes God to pass over in the judgment of his presence? Well, I would say this, that blood is used synecdotally in this text, not a word that we use often. Synecdote is a way of describing when we use one part of an object to refer to the whole of it. So you get a new car, and you say, check out my wheels. 
If your friend looks at the wheels only, you'll be disappointed. If you're talking to a friend, you want him to pay attention and be alert to something, keep an eye out. If your friend pops his eye out, (laughs) you'll know that he missed the point. You're using a part of the human body to refer to someone being alert. You're using a piece of the car to refer to the whole of the car. The blood on the doorpost is a synecdote. It's not just that the lambs bled. It's that the blood was shed unto death. There is a corpse in every house in Egypt on the night of the Passover. The reason that the judgment of God passes over the houses of Israel is because someone in that family already died. The spotless lamb that was brought into their home, that became one of them, that bears the judgment of the presence of God for them. He says, when I see that, I'll pass over. You know, it would be easy at this point for Israel to boast. Because, after all, they were the ones that raised the lambs. They were the ones that figured out the breeding techniques to uh, breed spotless lambs and and weed out the genetic imperfections that cause different uh, patterns on the fur. But here's the problem. There's nobody in Israel on the night of the Passover boasting about their superior farming techniques. Remember what I said earlier. God struck down all of the livestock in Egypt. He spared the livestock of the people of Israel. The only reason that there is a lamb in any house in Israel to bear their judgment for them is because God has provided it on their behalf. Israel is spared the judgment of the presence of God only by the mercy of God, not by their good deeds, not by their superior farming techniques. It is because a lamb has entered into their home, become like them, become a part of their family, and borne that judgment unto death for them. And the very lamb that does so is provided by God. And God says this, you need to remember this for all generations. You cannot forget it. You will begin your year remembering it. And here's why I think God says that. I think God wants Israel to remember so that on the day that John the Baptist points to his cousin Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they'll remember that the Lamb that bore their sin in Egypt was one that was provided by God on their behalf. He says, remember this, and I think he says, remember this, so that in retrospect, looking back on Palm Sunday, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem a week before the Passover, as the crowds cry out, Hosanna, which literally means save us, that they would reflect on the fact that for 2,000 years of remembering the Exodus, the Sunday before Passover, was the day that the lambs were led to Jerusalem to be slaughtered. God says, remember this. Do not forget it. So that when the author of Hebrews says of Christ Jesus, he's not ashamed to call us brothers, that they would reflect on the lamb in Egypt that was brought into the home of the Israelites, became a part of their family and died for their sake. And they would then in turn reflect on the word of God who becomes like us in every way in his incarnation. 
He's not ashamed to call us brothers. And then he dies on our behalf so that the judgment of God will pass over. Baylife, we're a deeply forgetful people. Not just us as a church, but the church as a whole. It would be easy for us to get so caught up in doing good things for God that we forget the good that God has done for us. The last true celebration of the Passover happened nearly 2,000 years ago after the Lamb of God was led into the city of Jerusalem to be slaughtered. And Jesus sits over the elements that the Jewish people had celebrated and consumed for 2,000 years. He holds the bread, he holds the wine. And I have to think, I don't want to presume the mind of Christ, but I have to think that in Jesus' mind, he says, for 2,000 years you've remembered the lambs in Egypt. And then he holds out the bread and wine and he says, now you do this in remembrance of me, lest you forget. It's my prayer that we would not forget, that we would not be so caught up in doing good things for God that we fail to remember and rejoice in his kindness towards us, that we, like Israel, could not stand in the presence of his holiness, but he provided a lamb who bore our judgment so that the judgment of God would pass over. If you've never heard that before, I'd love to talk with you. If you've heard that but forgotten, remember. And cling tightly to it. And walk in it all your days, I pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us. We don't have a right to stand before you on our own. But you've made a way. Uh, the, the Passover is a shadow that points to the greater exodus. Your people were once delivered from physical slavery, and now we've been delivered from slavery to sin. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have built into the life of the church reminders, lest we should forget, in the Lord's Supper, in your word, in community. God, I pray that you would remind us anew of the glory of the gospel of Jesus. And bind it to our hearts in the power of the Spirit that we would never forget it but would walk in it all of our days. We ask in the name of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll see you next week.